Welcome back to the Diet Doctor Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Scher. I'm not sure there's anything in lipidology right now that's more controversial than elevated LDL in the setting of a low-carb diet, and is it harmful or not? And we're going to get into a little bit about that topic today. Specifically, there is a new paper that's come out that we're going to do a deep dive on. And this paper uh, specifically has to deal with the lean mass hyperresponder phenotype, or this group of people who see a dramatic rise in their LDL after starting a low-carb diet. And the paper is titled, Elevated LDL Cholesterol with a Carbohydrate-Restricted Diet, Evidence for Lean Mass Hyperresponder Phenotype. And we're fortunate enough to be able to speak with four of the authors, Nick Norowitz, Adrian Sotomoto, uh, Dave Feldman, and Dr. Troclasian. So we're going to speak with all of them uh, to get their insight about this paper. But I, I really think this is an important topic because the paper kind of defines a whole population that before was not well-defined. You know, Dave Feldman coined this term, lean mass hyperresponder, way back in 2017, but there was no scientific uh, exploration of it, right? It was his experience. It was anecdotes coming in. Well, this paper is the first to sort of synthesize it and say, okay, this is what this patient population, what these people look like. Um, and so it was, let's talk about the study a little bit. It was a web survey of almost 600 people, um, and they had to have um, they had to be eating less than 130 grams of carbohydrates per day and not beyond lipid lowering medication. And they just had to have lipid values before and after starting a low carb diet. And interestingly, their mean LDL before starting low carb diet was uh, 135, 146 mean and median, depending on how you look at it. And after starting a low carb diet was 238. Now, as expected, their HDL and triglyceride was excellent. Their body mass index was 24 um, their mean age was 51. And so this is important because the overwhelming majority of low-carb studies for people with type 2 diabetes or obesity or overweight, um, their LDL does not go up on average. Um, now, some may go up a little bit, some go down a little bit. On average, it stays exactly the same. Um, and that's important because that's the most people who go on a keto diet. So uh, Ethan Weiss recently said that this topic's getting much more oxygen than it deserves, which I think was a, a, a pretty funny comment. But his point is well taken that this isn't the majority of the people on a low-carb diet. This is sort of a subpopulation of people who, who start a low-carb diet. Um, so it's important to know that this is the lower body mass index uh, people. But these people exist, right? Whether they're on a low-carb diet just to feel better, to um, improve their cognition, or to treat a condition, be it epilepsy or um, a GI condition or a mental health condition. There are many reasons to, that people are trying low-carb diets to treat conditions. And if their LDL goes up, we need to know what to do about it. So this is the first step in defining that population. And I think it's also important because... Look, I deal with a lot of patients who have elevated LDL after starting a low-carb diet, but the overwhelming majority of those are who fall into this non-lean mass hyperresponder, where their LDLs are the you know, 190, 220, 250. Whereas as you'll see, some of the examples in this lean mass hyperresponder group, their LDLs are 400, 600. And the only populations where we've seen that before is really the, the homozygous familial hypercholesterolemia, where you have two genes, basically two copies of a gene that both have a mutation for familial hypercholesterolemia, where LDLs skyrocket into the 600 range. Um, and these kids who have this don't live into adulthood. They get cor extensive coronary disease and die of myocardial infarctions, heart attacks at a young age. Whereas the heterozygous 
FH, where the numbers, the LDL numbers are like, you know, 220, 230, more along the lines of the non-lean mass hyperresponders, they don't necessarily have the same um, horrific prognosis. They definitely get coronary disease at a higher rate than the average person who doesn't, but not to the extent that the homozygous FH get people get it. So why am I making this differentiation? Because, well, because we have to decide if there's a cutoff point, if there's a new cutoff point uh, for people who are otherwise healthy on a low-carb diet with no metabolic health, could it be that elevated LDL to a certain level is now acceptable, whereas before that cutoff point was always 190? Is there a new cutoff point? That's not addressed in this study. I'm bringing that up as a reason why we should be looking at this, right? This is science to explore a whole new area of lipidology um, and LDL changes that previously hasn't been well-defined. Now, whether that also applies to LDL of 600, I think that's going to be really interesting and uh, very difficult to, to tease out. But sort of the main take-home of the study is that this lean mass hyperresponder group exists. The group who had a body mass index of 21.9 had a mean LDL of 315, and the group who had a body mass index of 24.5 had a mean LDL of 220. And their pre low carb diet LDL was the same at 135. So it clearly shows there's something to this group. Is it genetic? Well, not the traditional FH genes, maybe some other genes that we don't know about, or is it just something about having a lean body mass and this energy model hypothesis that Dave Feldman has brought up? So that's sort of a long-winded intro, but I think it's important to understand the concepts. Now, one other thing is none of this is medical advice. We are not saying this is any that this is known to be safe, that it is okay not to treat this, that it is okay not to evaluate this. Absolutely not. You need to evaluate things as an individual with your healthcare team, with your physician. We're not giving any medical advice. We're simply exploring a very interesting paper, which opens up a whole new world about how to evaluate nutrition and LDL. So without further ado, which was a long ado, let's get into the, uh, the multiple interviews with the authors of this paper. So now let's hear from two of the paper's primary authors. Um, there's Adrian Sotomoda. Now, Adrian is a physician and internist uh, who also has a PhD from Oxford in ketone metabolism and now is focusing on data science and, and data acquisition and is a full-time clinical researcher in Mexico City. Um, he can be found at AD underscore S-O-T-O-M-O-T-A, Sotomoda, um, at Twitter. And also from Nick Norwitz. Now, Nick was on our uh, metabolic health podcast that we had uh, previously, and he's a first-year medical student at Harvard Medical School, uh, also has a PhD from Oxford. Um, and you can find him at, on YouTube, where he has his own YouTube channel uh, under Nick Norowitz, and on Twitter at Nick Norowitz, where he's most active on Twitter. And they were both uh, instrumental in, in seeing this paper um, come to light, get written, uh, so it would be really interesting to get their perspective on the importance of the paper and some of the details for sure. Well, Adrian and Nick, it's great to have you here to talk about this study that you were both so involved in. And and Nick, we were joking offline that you're you're the medical student, man. You're the you've got the dorm. You don't have hardly any space to do a recording because you're a first year medical student. And here you are already as a first author on a pretty important paper that's sort of paving the way for a whole new uh, topic, I guess you can say, in lipid management and or in lipid diagnoses. Um, so I want to start with you, Nick, and tell me 
why this paper was so important to do and kind of what you what you found as the main conclusions. The way I describe it to people who are familiar with the space and what lean mass hyperresponders are is like the major findings of this paper are akin to the statement almost water is wet. The things that have been being observed since I got into this space by um, by by well in particular Dave Feldman, but this study kind of really puts it on the map and makes it so that we really can't ignore the phenomenons that what well, we will describe. Um, it just puts it out there. It's like lean mass hyperresponders are real. These associations are real. And it, I see it as the first domino pushing forward a series of investigations on mechanism um, and risk that will potentially teach us a lot about lipidology and cardiovascular risk. Yeah, and I think that's a good point that we're talking about mechanism and risk and that this paper doesn't address the risk concept. So I think that's important, right? Yeah, no, to clarify, I mean, this is just, this is purely observational, but in making the observation um, that we do, it sets the stage for these future things to come. Hence the first domino. Right. And you bring out a good point. You, you, you said we can't ignore it. And, and in a way, I mean, until you have a paper like this, People can say, oh, it's just anecdotal reports. Oh, it's not really a thing. Um, but so it seems like that was sort of the main take home that, yeah, it's a thing and it's something that we need to address. And these are some of the potential mechanisms behind it. Um, so, so Adrian, tell us a little bit about the main findings and correlations that you, you discovered in the paper. And then we'll sort of walk back and talk about how the evidence was, was collected and what it means for the quality. To re-emphasize what Nick was just saying a minute ago, yes, this phenotype definitely exists and is actually not so hard to detect because what we found was a very, very strong correlation between the BMI of someone who is adopting a low-carbohydrate diet and the change in their LDL, in their concentration of their LDL not the absolute number of LDL, how much it changed. And in other ways, or to paraphrase myself, what I would say is that you can expect different things from different people who are adopting a low-carbohydrate diet. Their lipids won't behave the same way if, you, if they start this low-carbohydrate ketogenic diet having a high body mass index versus if they have a low body mass index. And this very simple and concrete observation is tremendously useful precisely to design those future studies that should address risk and mechanisms. But I would simply state it like that or to summarize. It's not the same to start a low-carbohydrate diet having a high body mass index than having a low body mass index. And there is a very, very strong correlation between a low body mass index and a high or a large LDL change after a few weeks. Yeah, and that's so important to point out because, I mean, in a way, I think I can almost blame Dave Feldman and, and you guys for doing too good of a job of promoting the hyper-responder phenotype because I think so many traditionally trained cardiologists and doctors who are unfamiliar with low-carb sort of think that's the norm, that everybody's gonna have this LDL rise with a low-carb diet. But the evidence doesn't support that. Most of the evidence in people who are overweight and in studies to lose weight or treat their type 2 diabetes don't see a rise. But now here, you're really defining that this is the subgroup that does have a significant rise 
um, in LDL. So you mentioned the BMI and that there was a difference in BMI. So what did you see as like the main cut points for BMI above or below which it affects LDL? Actually, and I love this because I'm going to say we didn't see it. A computer did. <laughs> because one of the methods we are using in, in this paper, one of the many different ways we used for analyze this phenomenon, requires asking a computer, choose your own cutoff points. Yeah. Choose your own variables and choose your own cutoff points, precisely to avoid our inevitable human bias towards the predisposed ideas we have. So in one of these methods, it's just us asking a computer, if you have to predict someone who will have, someone will have a large LDL change, what would you look for first? And the computer observed, not us, that you would go for BMI and the cutoff is 25. So how cool is that? I mean, of course, computers, computers are ignorant of WHO cutoff points for whatever. And these are cutoff points that we've been using for decades and that are more than validated and that th their clinical relevance has been independently described and confirmed. So it was very, very nice to see that that was the cutoff point a computer picks when you yeah. ask these kind of questions. So if you're on a low-carb diet and your BMI is above 25, you have less of a chance of having a dramatic LDL rise. And if you're below 25, you have more of a chance. Now, did you have to specify what the LDL rise was that you were looking for above or below a certain level? No, this was just continuous data because, okay. and of course, it's not like your biology is drastically different if your BMI is 24.9 versus 25.1, you know, right. this, this is a continuum. Yeah. Right. And in this group of people having a BMI above 25, some people had actually negative changes of LDL, meaning their LDL was lower after the low-carb diet than, uh, than at baseline. And some people did have some elevations in their concentration of LDL, but they were quite minor when you compare it with the group were particularly thin when they adopted the low-carbohydrate. So we weren't establishing any cutoff points or a specific magnitude of change in LDL. We simply observed the whole spectrum, but the, difference are, the differences are quite dramatic. I mean, the, the, yeah. the group with the largest LDL change has more than three times change of the group with lowest LDL change. So it's, it's really, really a dramatic difference between those groups. Yeah, that's part of what's so impressive is just the how dramatic it is, like you're saying. It's not just a little bit different. It was substantially different. Now, now, Nick, you and I have both been pretty vocal on our own channels about quality of evidence and, and quality of data. Um, now, for a study like this, it's we have to be honest, it's hard to get really high quality data, meaning a randomized trial where everybody goes to a centralized lab to get their blood drawn and everybody has you know standard measurements. You couldn't do it that way. So tell us about the way that you um, you obtained your data and what it means for the study conclusions. Right. So we collected survey data, and they were self-reported survey data, which comes with its own limitations. Like you said, we, we haven't validated that these were measurements we took all at the same lab. That said, and while that will be a fair criticism of the paper, I think it's important also to point out Again, we're talking about like the, the degree of strength in these responses, the p-values, just the magnitude of the effect. And in order to see the effects we saw, if it were to be biased by misreporting, 
which we try to control for as best we can, and Adrian can talk about that probably more eloquently than I can, you basically need to have like a coup among respondents, which I think is very mm -hmm. unlikely. Where like the lean people are going to misreport this this way, and the people with you know low triglyceride to HDL ratio are going to report this way. Um, <laughs> um, and so I, I find that highly unlikely. And, and given what we were trying to do, the aims of this paper, um, to look at this response over a large population, it was most efficient uh, to you know collect survey data. It would have been very difficult for us to you know in our location find a thousand um, you know people on a low carb diet who are relatively lean and then do blood tests for all of them. That would have been tremendously expensive. We didn't have the resources, so we did what we could with what we had. And I think that the the you know approach will be criticized because of that. But I think the findings are still robust, and I'm sure. Adrian has more to say on that. I will try to, to highlight that we are talking about a very specific population within a very specific population. First of all, most people eat your standard Western diet. And as a consequence of that, most people are overweight. So it's not easy to find a large amount of data from people having a low-carb diet that started their low-carb diet thin or lean. Because most people who adopt a low-carb diet do so because they want to control their weight or their blood sugar. So this is a very, very infrequent, if you were to say so, uh, specific population that adopt a not-so-common, although it's increasing in popularity, not-so-common dietary regime, and who are doing so for the not-so-common prescriptions or 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 they're not trying to treat the same illnesses. So because it's hard to get this data, it's not feasible or rational to expect that this observation would pop up in your standard observational study or prospective longitudinal randomized control trial. And of course, it is a design limitation, and we should be open about that. But this study, this study is not trying to end the conversation. It's trying to start the conversation and simply to say, hey, I mean, objectively speaking, this thing exists. This is not the ideal setting or source of data, but it is good enough to allow us to now go and inquire using the right or the more solid methodological designs to confirm or corroborate or inquire mechanisms and risks, et cetera. That's such a great summary. It's not meant to end the discussion. It's meant to start the discussion. I love that. Nick, you have more to add to that? Um, yeah, I thought this is a slight tangent, but while we're talking about the limitations of the study and kind of um, you know where it will uh, attract criticism, uh, fairly or unfairly, I think the saturated fat issue might be one that we could talk about if that's okay. Sure, yeah. So so that the study didn't look at what the people were actually eating and didn't quantify whether they're having a lot of saturated fat or monounsaturated fat because one of the one of the suggestions, if you have high LDLs, maybe it's all because of the saturated fat, and if you reduced it, your LDL would go down, but that wasn't measured in this study. So Right, because it, yeah. it wouldn't have been easy or reliable data to collect, first of all. But second of all, I mean, while we didn't collect saturated fat data, again, I think it's important to think about the implications of that proposal. Let's just say, and, and this came up, let me say in review, like, oh, it's a simple explanation. The leaner people were just eating more saturated fat. And again, I want you to think about like, what is the implication of that? So 
are you saying that saturated fat is directly associated with leanness? And actually also in the study would imply that saturated fat is associated with low triglyceride to HDL ratio, even prior to diet. So again, that would propose, okay, it's the lean, healthy people who are across the spectrum selectively eating out saturated fat. And while that is an entertainable hypothesis, it's technically possible, it seems highly unlikely to me. And I don't think it's a suggestion that anybody would really make. So you know, the the survey data, the fact that it is survey data, and the fact that we didn't have data on saturated fat are perceived limitations, but I don't think that they really affect the major findings of the study. Um, I don't yeah. know if you'd agree with that. Good point. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great point. So, well, let's let's sort of circle back to the major findings. So, so Adrian, you mentioned about the connection between LDL rise and body mass index, but triglycerides to HDL ratio was another one. And so, Nick, you just brought that up, um, and I thought that was interesting because the the triglyceride to HDL ratio in this study was fantastic. I mean, it was it was the average one point zero, and in the lean mass hyper responders was it was zero point five. And you know, in the in the traditional literature, anything less than like two point five is considered good. So these were very impressive triglyceride to HDL ratios. So did they also track with the LDL rise to suggest it's not just BMI, but it's also metabolic health? Not yeah, only- definitely they do. Sorry, sorry, go. No, I was actually going to try to set you up. I mean, not only do they, and if people want to kind of get a, a, a vision of that, figure two in the paper is one of the central figures. It's a 3D bar graph showing these independently predict larger LDL increases and that they actually are synergistic. They add on to each other, which Adrian, you can explain the Spider-Man graphic, which is we had to put in the supplement. I think the supplement has some of my favorite stuff, but basically demonstrating just that. These independently predict larger LDL increases and they can be combined synergistically provide a stronger prediction. Exactly. I would say that one of the most interesting findings that, yeah, uh, Nick has mentioned before that the best part of the paper is the supplementary material. And I couldn't agree more <laughs> because you can't fit any everything into, into the same manuscript. But one of the things we analyzed was to what extent you can explain these changes using just BMI, to what extent you can explain these changes using the triglyceride to HDL ratio. And they are complementary. It's not like the whole story is being told by the same variable. And if you see this 3D bar chart Nick is referring to, you see how both have the same continuum or spectrum of change from the lowest to the highest values in the respective variables. And they are definitely complementary. And this is, this is very important also because you shouldn't try to predict LDL changes using LDL, because that's like trying to predict you'll arrive late for work using the time you left your home. So if you are going to predict or to identify who will have LDL changes, you should use something else. And in this particular case, it was very nice to see that again, the variable that pops up when you ask a computer what should we look at if we try to find who will have large LDL changes is the triglyceride to HDL. So, and also in the same fashion and almost in the same magnitude as the, the, as BMI. So they are definitely complementary, and that's another insightful observation from this. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great point. So it's, it's not just leanness. It's also metabolic health or using triglyceride to HDL ratio as a marker of metabolic health. Now, the other thing that I find so interesting and important about this paper is not just what was happening when 
your, the subjects were eating low carb, but their values prior to low carb. And so you hinted at that. You don't predict the rise in LDL based on what the LDL was. Because one, one argument could be, well, these people probably just had higher LDLs at baseline, and that's why it went up so high. But uh, So Nick, is it, was that what you found, or did you find something totally different? So one of my favorite um, significances, statistically speaking, or lack thereof in the paper, comes down to if you take the lean mass hyperresponders, which maybe we'll define in a moment, but the leaner people um, with the larger changes and then the non-lean mass hyperresponders, so you kind of segregate them. When you look at the lean mass hyperresponders, the magnitude of increase is tremendous. And the mean LDL, it's like, it's 316. It's astronomically high. But then you go back and, you know, the between group differences for on a low-carb diet, something like 10 to the negative 11th. Um, and the magnitude of the effect is enormous. But then you go back to look at the pre-diet LDLs. It just so happens they're exactly the same. The median is 135 for LMHR and non-LMHR, which is kind of astounding. They were literally the same. You couldn't distinguish them. And, and we have distributions for this as well. And then they go low carb and there's this massive difference. So no, it's not pre-diet LDL that kind of sets the baseline. And this is consistent with the notion that it's probably not something genetic. That idea alone doesn't rule it out although we do some testing in the um, case report. But it's consistent with the idea that maybe, maybe re speculating, there's something mechanistic going on rather than something genetic that increases baseline LDL. And actually, for, for comparison purposes, one of the graphs you can find in the paper is matching LMHR, non-LMHRs, and NHANES before the low-carbohydrate diet. And I mean, just from the look of it, you can see they're not that different. What really sets them apart is the intervention or the low-carb diet, and of course, LMHRs, just by definition, have larger LDL changes. You can also find that comparison with NHANE. Yeah, and I really liked how you did that because uh, as you were just saying, LMHR, the lean mass hyperresponder, the non-LMHR, so still someone who, who had their LDL increase but didn't fit the lean hyperresponder criteria, and compared it to NHANES, which is like a general US um, survey data, um, the not low-carb, not hyperresponders at all, to say, look, they're not that much different, which brings us to the point that you were making, Nick, that it doesn't prove it, but certainly suggests that it's not a genetic component. And that, I think, is from my standpoint, probably the most important take-home from this study because there are still cardiologists and physicians out there who say, if your LDL goes up to this degree, it is familial hypercholesterolemia, period. It is a genetic mutation that puts you at higher risk, period, no discussion. And this paper says, well, hang on, uh, maybe not. And look, I've ranted on this before that there's a whole criteria for diagnosing familial hypercholesterolemia. It's not just based on LDL, but what your LDL was previous is definitely part of that um, part of that diagnosis. So do you think this paper is going to really help uh, push forward that concept that this is not familiar hypercholesterolemia or not likely to be? I, I personally think so. And I want to elaborate on a, a few things, um, Brett. First of all, um, I want to be clear. I'm not ruling out genetic contributions um, by any means. But when you think about like the the these results and what you know genetic polymorphisms would have to do to generate these results, it'd be kind of weird. Also, like think about the fact that it's not just LDL. You have these other markers that are tracking with BMI. 
and with the LDL change, the triglyceride to HDL ratio. So it would make more sense to me if we could put together a model, a mechanistic model to understand how this triad goes together and something that Dave harps on all the time, and I think he's right in doing so, is that we can't look at you know, values in isolation, LDL alone, or HDL alone, or triglycerides alone. In fact, I think you know, um, there are a lot of people in social media, Twitter experts like uh, Thomas Dayspring who make the point, you know, it's not been shown that HDL is protective. And we're not saying HDL is protective or triglycerides are protective. But when you look at these things in combination, they tell you a story about the underlying metabolism that's going on. And I think that at minimum, this observation is consistent with the lipid energy model that, you know, ties everything up in a nice bow and provides a testable model to evaluate, you know, if we are right, if this is mechanistic. And again, this is a way in which this study sets up future studies to evaluate the why. Yeah, that, that's a great point about how it's setting um, setting the stage for, for mechanisms, because there is that question of why does LDL go up so much, which is unanswered, still unanswered after this paper, but this certainly is laying the groundwork for for potential future studies, so so important. But let, let's rewind for a second and talk about some specific numbers because uh, we got so excited about the details. I can see how much you guys love talking about it because it is very exciting. But let's talk about the specific numbers uh, because they're pretty impressive. So the um, the lean mass hyperresponders, their LDL went up on average by 143 milligrams per deciliter, whereas the non-lean mass hyperresponders went up by an average of 63. So still both rose pretty significantly. The average lean mass hyperresponder LDL was 315 compared to 220 milligrams per deciliter for the non-lean mass hyperresponder. So what did you use as your criteria to define the lean mass hyperresponder? We used the historic criteria that were proposed four years ago by Dave in a blog post in which you would just kind of put it out there. And um, yeah, I, I think it's fair to use the like. That was the origin of the term. And we were basically, what we did first is engage in a hypothesis naive exploratory analysis to um, observe the trends that are consistent with this model and then go for these cut points of, as defined by Dave in 2017, LDL above 200 milligrams per deciliter, HDL above 80 milligrams per deciliter, and triglycerides below 70 milligrams per deciliter. That is what has come to be known as lean mass hyperresponders. And I think an important point to note is you know, one of the reasons um, I believe that Dave chose these three cut points is because each in and of themselves is a really strict cut point to meet. You don't meet many people with LDLs above 200 or HDLs above 80 or triglycerides below 70. So if independently they're rare, together they should be very rare unless they associate in a particular triad, hence the lean mass hyperresponder. And another really important thing to emphasize, and this was kind of the one of the findings of the paper is it's confusing. The lean mass hyperresponder, that term, actually has nothing to do definitionally with BMI. And I, I want to pause there to emphasize that lean mass hyperresponder is not defined by leanness. It's defined only by this triad of LDL above 200, HDL above 80, um, triglycerides below 70. And the term lean came from the fact that just empirically, Dave was observing these people are kind of lean and athletic. And what this paper shows in part is not only does this you know group of people actually exist and they could be studied, but yes, they're actually leaner. So, you know, I don't like. I, I, one thing you could say is like the lean mass hyperresponder term is a prediction about the metabolic phenotype, and that is validated by this paper. And I will also say that 
validating or confirming that these cutoffs are the correct ones is beyond the scope of this study. This is not about defending this is the right cutoff point for saying or for defining. We used what was already available because empirically, that's what seemed to work. However, it's not about the cutoff point because you have a continuum and, and the spectrum of change, almost monotonic spectrum of change for, for BMI and for triglyceride to HDL ratio. So it's not really about the cutoff point. Yes, it looks like those cutoff points are a good guesstimate or a good ballpark figure of where the right cutoff point could be. We are not so concerned about what's the exact value that maximizes your precision in identifying this particular phenotype, more with the general observation of people with this particular lipid triad tend to be lean, tend to have large LDL changes when they adopt a low-carbohydrate diet. And this makes them easier to identify and therefore to recruit and for design these future studies to now interpret better what these large LDL changes mean for cardiovascular risk and why they occur. Yeah, so I'm curious what you both think about the impact of the study. And I know, I, I love how you said it, so I'll repeat it again. It's not to end the conversation, it's to start the conversation. But I can imagine, you know, there's going to be a large percentage of physicians and cardiologists who say, who cares? Their LDLs are going up and that's a problem. Why do we need to do things further? Why do we need to look at it further? Because it is a problem, period. So I guess one, we can start with you, Nick, and then go to you, Adrian. Do you, do you expect people to respond that way? And how would you respond to that? I, su surprisingly, I don't. Um, I know that, you know, we, we, we get it caught up on social, I know we interact a lot on social media where people get entrenched in, in their like sides. Um, and you only have a chance to kind of get short clips. And then the other side is thought of as, you know, the enemy becomes a he said, she said. Anyway, that all aside, what I'm actually noticing, this has been one of the really exciting things about my transition from um, doing research to now starting medical school, is as I walk around describing this phenotype to people and the lipid energy model to people, 100% of the time, be it my peers or be it professors or cardiologists, I actually speaking to a division chief of cardiology just the other day, they're like, this is fascinating. This is a fascinating observation. And it's it's very fascinating. It doesn't, it has nothing to do with right now, you know, from a scientific standpoint, the risk. The observation in and of itself is incredibly compelling. And I think any student of science or medicine would want to get to the bottom of it. What's going on? And you can be of the opinion that it doesn't matter why it's happening, you should still treat the patient. But then let's describe why this is occurring so that we can get a better understanding of. Um, lipidology, cardiovascular risk. I mean, that's exactly what like Brown and Goldstein did. They observed something and then they chased the question scientifically, found an answer, and then developed, say, a solution to that answer. And I just think there's no way you can just observe this and be like, this is not freaking cool. <laughs> I love your enthusiasm and that perspective. I mean, that is so well said. And, and I hope people, I hope most people do respond that way at how cool this is. What about you, Adrian? Do you share that, that sentiment? Yeah, I mean, change, to go back to my two hats, the clinical hat and the researcher hat, um, thinking only as a clinician, I think it's necessary to acknowledge that there will always be people who are interested in or already decided to adopt a low-carbohydrate diet for 
a pleiad of health reasons. It's not only people who want to lose weight or to control. The more we study low carbohydrate diets, the more potential therapeutic in uh, places we can use them in. And, it, and it's, it's something that it's almost inevitable. There will always be someone who is interested in adopting this particular dietary pattern and who happens to be lean. So it's, it's important to know what to expect and to know how to identify those people, regardless of where you stand on the LDL causality debate. This is not about that debate. This is just a matter of, it is likely you'll have lean patients who are interested or are, are already in a low-carb diet. So because these diets have increased in popularity, the amount of people that will adopt them being lean is just expected to increase. We cannot ignore it, to go back to this point. This is not perfect data, but definitely, and I, honestly, I would like to emphasize how we walked the extra mile to do the best we could with unperfect data. Everything is transparent. You can look at the data on GitHub. You can look at the code. The code was independently reviewed. Is this is, the analysis was independently reviewed. This is totally open windows because we are... We are, we are sure, we are, acknowledge, we, we are acknowledging that this is an imperfect source of data that was needed because of how rare this phenomenon is, but it is not going to be rare anymore to go full circle because these diets are increasing in popularity and it is likely that as a clinician, you'll face this question. Therefore, we cannot ignore it. This definitely exists. It's large enough to be, uh, that we are certain that this phenotype exists and again, this is just expected to increase. So regardless of what you think will happen with cardiovascular risk, these matters. Now let's hear from the man himself, Dave Feldman. And I call him the man himself because he really has been the one to push forward the whole concept of the lean mass hyperresponder phenotype. And as we're going to discuss in our interview, you know, I had him back on my podcast when it was the low carb cardiology podcast back in 2017 to talk about this because I was fascinated how the whole concept really sort of you know, makes you have to um, look at LDL and cholesterol in a whole new way in ways that we weren't taught. So it really was sort of turning the lipidology upside down potentially. And to see now where it's come, um, Dave's going to give us a great perspective on that. And he's also been on the Diet Doctor podcast in episode 79 and way back on episode eight. So listening to those episodes may also help give a little context and a preamble on where, uh, where sort of this whole topic has come from and where it's going. And of course, you can find him on Twitter at Dave Keto, um, and you can find him at cholesterolcode.com, and you can find him at citizensciencefoundation.org, which is where his clinical trial is housed. Let's get a little more insight from Dave. So Dave, I need to start by saying congratulations on having this paper come out. And it's been a, a long journey for you to get to this point. And we just heard from Adrian and Nick about a lot of the specifics of the paper, but it's I'm thrilled to have you on to discuss more about sort of the topic in general and the journey you've been on to get to this point. So, so first, just give me an update on how you're feeling now that you've gotten to the point that you have a publication about the lean mass hyperresponder phenotype. You know, to use my phrase, as I often do, I'm cautiously optimistic. <laughs> um, first, though, I do want to I, I want to thank you for having me on, and I want to take this moment to thank 
who you just mentioned, Nick and Adrian, um, I couldn't have done it without them. They have been so fantastic. And I, I don't mean to leave out uh, David Ludwig and, and Tro, of course, but I do want to emphasize that there were a lot of late nights where the three of us were chatting quite a bit and they had so much to offer in that regard. And so I just, I just want to be sure to extend that. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a great team. And, and I mean, I think that's part of what has made you successful. There's obviously you yourself and what you've brought up with this whole concept of hyper responders, but also you've, you've assembled a teammates, both for your upcoming study or your now enrolling study, um, and the paper you've published. So it's clear, you know, how to associate with the right people, which I think is very helpful. But when, when you started this whole thing, um, when you started bringing up the idea of hyper responders, I mean, you got a lot of pushback and you still do get a fair amount of pushback about like, well, what is it really? It's just an elevation in LDL. And it's something that as, as clinicians, as cardiologists, as doctors, we need to be worried about why are we trying to make it something different? But you've sort of held your ground and said, no, I think it is something different. So tell us how the paper that you've now published really helps bring that to light that, yeah, maybe this is something different than just a regular LDL elevation. Right. Now, of course, uh, as a lot of critics would say, and as I'd like to say up front, there are some limitations, as is often the case with uh, combining a lot of observational data. Even though we have the case series for which there's something somewhat interventional, it's also a case series. So this is, this is a very, I think, strong first step. But yes, to go back in time to when this first occurred, really what happened was is that I saw my cholesterol rise and on countless podcasts with you, I give the story on how I then started doing some experimenting. But in particular, I was especially interested in how all the lipid values change. They change with changing my diet, even in very short spans of time. So not just the so-called bad cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, but also HDL cholesterol and triglycerides. And more and more, I really wanted to look at how much when these are combined, they associate with different outcomes, including just being on a low-carb diet in the first place. So as more and more people were following my research and were seeing the experiments I did, I did and they did experiments, they would share them back to me. I would say, you know, we really, really should expand this out to just looking at LDL. And as you know, a lot of people like to look at them separately, LDL over here, and then HDL and triglycerides over here, which is a lot of clinicians, both inside and outside of low carb. And I keep going, no, 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 let's look at them together, this pattern, this triad. And coming up to about 2017, um, I started saying, you know, or it is really pattern recognition. I started seeing that those people who tended to be leaner and more athletic especially, would have the most pronounced levels. They would have the highest LDL and highest uh, HDL along with the lowest triglycerides to the point where I just said, you know, I'm, I'm just going to put a name on this. We already have hyper responders for those people who are on a low-carb diet and they see their cholesterol go up. I'm going to call these lean mass hyper responders because it seems like when they have these three cut points that I'm just throwing out here, they seem to be more likely lean. And of course, Brett, you know, because I've told you this privately many times before, I really had no idea if that pattern mm -hmm. recognition would hold up because there could have been a lot of people coming back and saying, no, 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 you're wrong. I have a high BMI. I'm, you know, I'm morbidly obese, but I have this profile. But as of yet, uh, since announcing that, no, there's been a huge number of people that have come forward that said, actually, this fits me almost perfectly. This is, I, I'm very lean. I'm very athletic. I'm very low carb. And I see this, this high triad and conversely, those people would tend to be 
a little bit on the higher BMI side um, who may have more work to go, they tend to not see this profile, this lean mass hyperresponder profile. Yes, in a way, the paper is perfect validation for what you did observe. And, you know, we have to be honest, that doesn't always work out. And I think you were also pretty clear to say, look, I don't know that this is ca the case, and that's why we need to we need to study it. And, you know, we talked about the limitations of the study with Nick and Adrian. We went through quite a number of them. And, you know, Adrian had a great quote. We're not, this This is not meant to end the discussion. This is meant to begin the discussion and further the discussion. And I think that's so appropriate. And, and I'm glad you brought up 2017 because I was going back in history. So this will be our sixth podcast together. It'll be our third on Diet Doctor. We had three on the Low Carb Cardiologist podcast going back to 2017. And of course, I have an interest in this because, because as a cardiologist who and a lipidologist who's been you know entrenched in in lipid treatment and in lipid theories and in the traditional teaching of lipids, this really does in a way sort of turn it upside down on its head. But only if you see it like in a certain light, because there are plenty of other people who see it in a different light and think it does nothing to turn lipid treatment on its head. Meaning that maybe there is a subset of people where LDL goes up where it's not of concern. Now, of course, your study didn't specifically address that, or the paper that you, you published did not specifically address that. But I'm curious if you think this publication will start to have an impact on people to say, huh, maybe I do need to see this differently. Do you think this paper is enough to have that type of impact on some of the skeptical physicians and clinicians? Well, I think it's a great first step. But I, this is definitely a topic we need to hit head on. And, and Brett, I credit you uh, acting not only before you joined Diet Doctor, but also now as being a part of Diet Doctor, that the correct answer with regard to what the risk association is in this very unique context is we really don't know. And really what I'm hopeful for with this paper, and just for that matter, with greater recognition of this phenotype, is that there'll be a greater curiosity to find out Let's truly find out. And obviously, uh, the big elephant in the room is that we're already in the process of doing that with the clinical trial, that we actually have a lean mass hyperresponder uh, clinical trial that we're doing out of Lundquist, which is based out of UCLA. And e even as I'm talking to you now, I can tell you we've already processed a number of people um, who are getting scans, physical scans, CT angiograms, to actually detect both calcified and non-calcified plaque um, at you know, the very beginning of the study. And then one year later, at the end of the study, we'll be getting another one. And, and that way, we can at least also get some preliminary perspective data on whether this triad, whether this phenotype, the lean mass hyperresponders, whether or not we're going to see the expected level of risk given how high their LDL levels are. Yeah. And so enrollment for that trial is still going on at this time here in November, December of 2021? It is. In fact, it's a six-month period. So even if you're watching this, uh, you know, and it's, let's say, February of 2022, uh, you may still want to reach out until we publicly announce that enrollment's closed. Uh, if you fit the um, cut points, which are sort of a relaxed version of LMHR, I'll just say what they are off the top of my head. It's, it's if you started with an LDL below 160 before having gone on a ketogenic diet, but then after going on a ketogenic diet, you saw it rise to at least 190 or higher, but whatever that number is, at least 50% or more, with an HDL of 60 or higher and triglycerides of 80 or lower. So it's a little bit more like a borderline lean mass hyperresponder, 
but that said, again, it gets us back to this triad. As you know, I have a model, which we're not going to unpack here, but that I think kind of explains why we see this combination of lipid levels in those people going low carb and who otherwise seem to be metabolically healthy. And while I do have some optimism that I'm upfront about, again, I can't emphasize enough, there's still a lot of uncertainty. We need to find out with stronger data to really be able to find out uh, the level of risk that's involved. So does the paper that you've published provide more backing for your energy model hypothesis for why LDL goes up? So I think that it does. I mean, again, they're all puzzle pieces and no piece has given us everything. But do I think it's a large puzzle piece? Absolutely. I think that we certainly see, uh, as is predicted by the model, that the lower your fat mass uh, relative to your lean mass, and especially if you're ketogenic, if you're very uh, low carb, you tend to see a much higher level of association with LDL. Again, particularly if before you had gone on the diet, you had already had a high HDL and low triglyceride level. Yeah. And, and I talked to um, Adrian and Nick about this as well, but I think this is an important concept that I want to get your input too, is the, the genetic concern. Because you know, a number of clinicians believe that if your LDL is that high, you know, 200, 250, 300, like we're seeing in hyper responders, there must be a genetic component to it. But as I discussed with, with Nick and Adrian, everybody's LDL was averaged the same before they went low carbon, before their LDL went up, which suggests that maybe there's not a genetic component, but how much do you think that either puts that to rest or, you know, plays against the genetic hypothesis? I think it's strong. Well, I'm not even sure if I'm going to say strong. I'm going to say it's very significant evidence that seems to push back against it, given whatever the diet was previously to what the current diet is now. We see such a pronounced difference. But that said, it is observational. I think uh, our strongest data will actually be coming out of the clinical trial, because in the yeah. clinical trial, we're, we're getting very strong genetic data for which we can uh, get, get a better sense of just how much they have poly or monogenetic uh, familial hypercholesterolemia. And I mean, we're testing for a huge spectrum. It's, it's quite a lot of it. So yeah. there too, we'll see how many of those folks who have very, very high levels of LDL happen to also have these genetic markers. And of course, I'm blinded to the data so far, so I don't know, but um, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and predict that we're not going to find that strong of an association. Not that there couldn't be some who you know will pop up in the the population per what we would typically see on average. Right. But do I think it's going to be a high predominance? I really don't. Yeah. Well, you certainly have a, a habit of going out on the limb to predict things and you're usually spot on. That's one of, definitely one of the interesting things about you. So, and as part of that, I mean, I guess that ties into my next question is you sort of, you have become the face of this phenotype. Um, and you know, on, on Twitter, you're very active on Twitter, getting into a number of different discussions, frequently with people who do not agree with you. And so I'm curious what you've seen since, you know, over the course of the past four or five, six years that you've been talking about this, what have you seen about the opposition or the sort of acceptance of interest in this topic? Have you noticed a trend over the years? Well, First and foremost, I want to say a lot of the people I'm engaging with, especially if I'm having a long-term dialogue, it means that I respect that we're being cordial, even if they have a difference of opinion. And I want to emphasize again, I hope you know this, Brett, but certainly I want everyone else to know this. I think almost everybody who disagrees with me is coming from a good place. 
they, they're genuinely wanting to do right by their patients and their families. So um, with that said, do I find that there's a greater acceptance that there's more to the story with lean mass hyperresponders and that there should be more interest in studying risk? I'm going to say slowly. It's been a slow climb. Um, we're not we're not quite, I think, at a breakthrough point, but I think the clinical trial will help with that if, if indeed the data goes in the way that um, I'm hoping that it will. It may be that indeed at the end of the clinical trial, we're going to find that this really is a high-risk population, in which case this is another neat thing about the paper. The other neat thing about the paper is if indeed, and, and I should emphasize this again, if you're a lean mass hyper, if you're watching right now, you're a lean mass hyperspotter, you're uncomfortable with your high LDL, please recognize that whatever level of excitement we have about this paper, about the discovery and the process, that does not convert to our likewise optimism that this is safe and fine. It doesn't. If you're uncomfortable with it, please work with your doctor, talk to your family, do your research. And we have lots of ways in which you can uh, take steps to lower it. But this paper in particular outlines that, yeah, a lot of a lot of folks who are lean mass hyperspawners, like Dr. Tro's case study of lean mass hyperspawners who had really high LDL, they don't have to totally leave low carb. They can leave keto and go into, rather than having, say, less than you know 25 carbs a day, 30 carbs a day, they can take it up to something closer like 100, 120 carbs, and then that will bring their LDL levels uh, substantially lower. Yeah. And so in that, in that regard, this is where the paper, I think, should be embraced by a lot of people who are uncomfortable with the lean mass hyperspondor phenotype. Yeah, and I really want to echo what you said. I think you said that very well, in that most of the people who push back about the enthusiasm about the hyperresponder phenotype, that, that they're coming from a good place because a number of them are clinicians face-to-face -face with a patient with high LDL and says, I, I don't know what to do here. I don't feel comfortable that we have data that I can leave this alone. And I think we should take steps to lower your LDL. And some of them have been confronted with patients who say, no, 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 I read on the internet is fine. I don't have to worry about it. And that's you know, you can't control how people interpret things if, when it's a little out of context and not exactly as you say, but I can see how people are concerned about that, that the more people talk about the lean mass hyperresponder phenotype, the more maybe people start to think we have conclusive evidence that it's okay, you don't have to worry about it. And I've heard you say over and over and over again that that's not the case, um, but I think that's where a lot of people are concerned um, just by the topic coming up. And I mean, do you feel a sense of responsibility for that or a, a sense of responsibility that you have to somehow counteract that as well? I do. And it's why I take the time that I do to speak as often as I do about it. Um, I, on Twitter in particular, I like to run polls on a regular basis to try to gauge how much people are following me or are picking up on that message. And I'm excited because I recently, I think it was like six months ago, I did a poll and I was impressed at how many people, uh, you know, followed and understood what I had been saying, at least the major themes. For sure, I think that there are a lot of people who get, um, I, I guess I could say just very focused on one particular piece of data and then take it to extremes. And this is just often the case in the diet space. But if there's any single thing that I really want to get across to anybody who's following my work is it's complicated. It's not just as simple as, and you know this pretty well, it's what I just talked about earlier. I don't even like to look at a single marker. I want to look at markers in combination because it tells a bigger, broader picture. It gives us more information on risk. And I want that for, for doctors and scientists as well. 
But at the end of the day, if you're trying to say, here's the Cliff's notes of what Dave is saying, it's probably wrong because I just don't have a lot of Cliff's notes, as you well know. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why even trying to keep an interview with you below like an hour is a challenging thing to do because there's so much, exactly. to, so much to discuss. <laughs> That's true. So if there's any bigger thing I want to appeal to everybody for is let's move this forward. I think that there's, you've watched over, I mean, really almost nearly since the beginning, you've watched me constantly banging the drum, shaking the trees, trying to get people to pay attention that this is at least a context worth studying and exploring. So whether you're watching me right now and you are a fan, whether or not you are a critic, whoever you are, I hope by this point in time, and especially with this paper, it will have brought forward that, hey, there's some really important patterns that are worth our attention and that science needs to move forward on. I genuinely think, Brett, and I know I've said this many times before, it's worth saying one more time, I think lean mass hyperresponders, I think the triad in particular, it's going to teach us a lot, not just about the low-carb diet. I think it's going to teach us a lot about metabolism. I really do. So finally, let's hear from Dr. Tro Kalasian, who is responsible for the five case studies in this paper that have some pretty dramatic results. So we're going to go into some of the details about the LDL levels from the beginning to the rise to what happens after making simple dietary changes, but more importantly, sort of his philosophy of how, uh, how to approach these types of situations. So I think you're going to find some good clinical nuggets in this little discussion with Tro Kalasian. Well, Dr. Tro, so we've already had the pleasure of hearing from Adrian and Nick and from Dave, but now I want to talk to you about these case studies because these were pretty dramatic case studies and they present a perspective that probably a lot of people don't think about when seeing somebody with elevated LDL on a low-carb diet. So I want to start with, um, you were very clear that in the, these case studies, these were five individuals whose LDL went up significantly after starting a very low-carb diet, so less than like 25 grams of carbs per day, and they, refu they were refusing statin therapy. So I want you to just sort of tell us the importance of those two things, about the amount of carbs they were eating and the discussion about statin therapy, uh, and then we'll talk about sort of the dramatic changes and what you did to elicit these changes. Yeah, I think very basically <clears throat> when somebody comes to my office and uh, their main concern when they have a high cholesterol is, you know, can I prevent a heart attack? What is the, what is the approach I should have for primary prevention of cardiovascular disease, right? That is mo on most people's minds when they're concerned about their lipids. Now, these particular patients, uh, they came to me with levels that are consistent with uh, in cardiology, and you know this very well, of uh, familial hypercholesterolemia. We saw an LDL above 600, mm -hmm. which is astronomically high. And uh, several of these patients had an LDL well above 190, which is one of the indications to initiate statin treatment because the concern is these people would have a genetic disorder that's leading to high cholesterol and, uh, and a medication like a statin could potentially uh, reduce their, their uh, chances of getting a heart attack. It's a real concern. And it is a, um, it, in the guidelines for the AHA ACC, the guidelines say, you know, treat with statin therapy. Now, these patients who came to me, every single one of them said, 
you know, we've seen a cardiologist, we saw our primary, everybody's worried, but this is my problem, Tro. I do not want a statin medication. Well, when I hear that, the first thing I did was educate them. This is why we are telling you to take a statin, right? Now, some of these patients had taken a statin and didn't tolerate them. Some of them said to me very plainly, Tro, I will not take a medication that I know, uh, uh, you know, for a lifestyle issue. I know that my diet caused this. And I said, okay, well, that's great that you believe that. Well, show me. So for each one of these five patients, we said, we will gather all of your old data. We went back for years and looked at their prior cholesterol. We gathered all of their old labs. And every single one of them didn't start with this astronomically high level. So already we knew that they didn't have a lifetime issue with a genetic lipid problem that caused a high level consistent with FH. But just to make sure, I said, guys, I'm not going to do this unless your genetic panel comes back negative. Right? So we went and we tested FH on all of them. And now, um, while that has its own limitations, at least it tells me there's no known genetic abnormality that, you know, that, that we have uh, isolated. And they previously did not uh, show a lifetime of high LDL. Yeah, so let me, let me interrupt right there for a second. That's such an important point because the, the concept of any LDL above 190 equals familial hypercholesterolemia is unfortunately still believed by so many cardiologists. But the concern is that if that is the case, if you have this genetic abnormality, then you have an elevated cholesterol for your entire life. From the moment you're born, your LDL is elevated. So you have that time exposure. So what you're saying is these patients did not have that time exposure because their LDL didn't go up until they started low carb. And in the paper, I have it up here, so I'll read some of the numbers. I mean, the pre-LDL for one was 116, which is fantastic. There's no way someone has an LD of 116 in FH, but then went up to 665, which is, you say, as you're saying, is astronomical. One at 122 for their LDL went up to 583. Another 137 to 239, 113 to 317, and then 141 to 336. So these are dramatic rises, but as you're saying, you went back and showed that they had normal pre-LDL, and you took that extra step to make sure they didn't have the genetics. So I think it's pretty clear they didn't have FH. So I think that's a really important point for people to realize the steps you took. But you took more steps than that too, didn't you, to evaluate sort of their, their presence or absence of plaque. Yeah, so uh, in my office, you know, I have a point of care ultrasound, uh, and in some some of these patients weren't local to my office. So if they could come to see me, we looked at their carotid arteries to see if there was any plaque deposition. We did a physical exam on them to see if they had any deposits of cholesterol in their eyes, ears, tendons. You know, we did our best. If they could come in here, we evaluated them. None of them showed those classic physical exam findings. Uh, that we see in FH. And in the patients that could not come to see me in my office, we sent them for carotid ultrasounds and typically a coronary artery calcium score. Now, a couple of those patients said, I won't do those tests. And so we have to work with what our patients are willing to do. Many of them had no objective markers of any peripheral deposition of plaques that we could detect on either ultrasound or uh, calcium score. So this to me said, okay, these are very low risk patients. And it made me, uh, I shouldn't say low risk patients. They had no signs of 
you know, any significant atherosclerotic disease. Now, could we have done more? Could we have sent them to stress tests? In one case, we did, right? In one case, they agreed to a stress test, and they did a stress test, and it was negative. So we tried to make this as low risk as possible for these patients, given what they told me they would do and what they told me they wouldn't do. And all of them were educated on what are the standard approaches and why. Why is it that modern medicine thinks we have to lower LDL? What does it do to cardiovascular disease? What does it do to all-cause mortality? How does each drug work? And so uh, we explained to them what the guidelines were and why. And every single one of them said, Tro, I know I had normal lipids before. I will not take a medication. And so we said, all right, let's look at the data, uh, the other data in the medical literature, and come up with a, something we can do. If you look at the anorexia data, for example, and I'm not saying these patients had anorexia, but if you look at lipid levels in anorexia, they tend to go up. If you look at the, you know, what, what the solution is in the anorexia data, it's refeed and cause some weight gain. Well, none of these patients wanted to gain weight, but we could tell them, hey, wait a second, why don't you have more carbohydrates and see if that uh, lowers your LDL level? Um, if you look at other data like Ramadan fasting, for example, the lower your BMI is, the more likely you are to have a higher elevation of LDL after Ramadan. So we knew that there's some degree of carb restriction in the case of anorexia and, and uh, meal frequency restriction, intermittent fasting, that promotes a higher LDL. So we told them, look, you know, you're not really restricting your protein and fat, but you are restricting your carbohydrates, let's bring back the minimum amount that you'd need, you know, to uh, elicit, you know, to, to, to potentially see if we'll get any changes. So this was truly like, I don't know what's going to happen. I will monitor your lipids very aggressively, and we will make sure this gets better. Well, so let's talk numbers for a second. Let's talk numbers, because everybody was on a less than 25 gram carbohydrate diet to start. And so for these five case studies, what did you raise their carbohydrate intake to that showed the subsequent reduction in LDL? So we recommended that they start to include, we, we emphasize starch uh, because fructose can, in some cases, raise LDL further. We also emphasized, uh, uh, we previously emphasized fiber in all of these patients and it had no impact on their LDL. So we said, look, you know, if, Adding fiber is not helping, right? Uh, let's try adding starch. So we typically said, you know, if you can stick to a potato or sweet potato, about 50 to 100 grams, depending on um, how uh, aggressively they exercise. Many of these patients exercise vigorously. And uh, we asked them to particularly pay attention to adding back carbs before or after exercise and one other time in the day. Um, and keep it separate from fat was our general recommendation because that's a hyperphagic signal. So uh, we told them to have a sweet potato or a potato, right? Nothing crazy. Uh, mm -hmm. And and uh, we did emphasize, you know, uh, green leafy vegetables and said really no other change. That's what I think is so amazing that the intervention was not that dramatic. I mean, it really sounds like a minimal intervention of raising carbs, a potato, a sweet potato, 50 or so grams, and the results, though, were really dramatic. So the, the person whose LDL went to 665 came down to 185. 
The one who went to 583 came down to 360, so still pretty elevated there. The one who went to 239 came all the way down to 115, lower than their pre-low-carb LDL. The one at 317 came down to 195, and the one at 336 came down to 236. So, I mean, those are dramatic changes from a potato. Were you surprised to see that? Well, yes and no. So I think if anybody has paid attention to what Dave Feldman has been saying for the past five years, I think that, uh, you know, given the way we evaluated these patients, we made sure that they have no known cause of FH. We made sure that they uh, had previously normal levels. We made sure their risk was low. And given the data we've seen, um, regarding fasting and anorexia and SGLT2 inhibitors, you know, uh, I suspected that adding back carbohydrates um, would have an, uh, an impact very similar to this. There was no reason why it wouldn't. If restricting carbs caused the phenomenon, uh, giving carbs back should reverse it. Now, what we found, you know, some of these took a long, lot longer than I suspected. And, and really, we have no way of knowing exactly what they ate. But these are very diligent people, very open with our office. We communicated very frequently. We got monthly labs and sometimes bi-weekly, you know, uh, bi-monthly labs in some of them. Um, so bottom line was um, these, you know, it was, it was a physician-monitored intervention. Yeah, but so important. I think what you're getting at, though, like this isn't a randomized controlled feeding study, right? This is not high-level quality data. These are anecdotal reports, but from a clinician who was communicating very well with his patients and monitoring his patients very closely and has a good understanding on what his patients were doing, but still uh, but still, clinical series anecdotal reports. So Adrian had a quote earlier in our discussion where he said, look, this whole study doesn't end the discussion. This is meant to start the discussion. And that's what I see by these case studies. Like this is fueled to start further studies. And I'm sure that's try probably what you're trying to get at. Yeah, look, I think the, there's very important clinical questions this raises. First of all, can we predict who will have a higher LDL on a low-carb diet? Yes, I believe with the data we have from the survey and kind of this clinical experience, yes, we can. The lower your weight, right, okay, the lower your weight in the case of Ramadan fasting literature, in the case of fasting literature in general, in the case of anorexia, the lower your BMI, the higher your cholesterol, right? And what we have shown uh, with the survey data is that the lower, the, the better your metabolic health prior to the carbohydrate restriction, the more likely you will experience an LDL increase. Now, the question is, is, is this generalizable? Possibly, we don't know yet, yeah. right? And the other issue is, is what can we do about it? Okay, in a very safe, monitored environment where uh, the cardiac risk and total evaluation of a patient is really considered, you know, yes, it seems like there is an intervention that reverses these findings. So I think that that is... Uh, you know, uh, it's not generalizable. Absolutely. We cannot make any firm conclusions. This isn't a controlled feeding study. This isn't a large randomized controlled trial. We may never get that data, right? Because the amount of money it will take to do this, but at least it lets clinicians know, hey, maybe there's a way, and it lets clinicians know, okay, maybe there's a way to predict who will see that higher LDL increase yeah. or when a patient will see a higher LDL increase on a low-carb diet, and it's not the patient with 
obesity that's more likely to have this, it seems that it's somebody who's leaner and more active. Yeah, so let me ask you another question then though about these patients. So these patients were on a very low carbohydrate diet for some reason. So when you added in more carbohydrates to lower their LDL, did they see any negative effects from those initial reasons that they went on the very low carbohydrate diet? In other words, did, did adding those 50 to 70 grams of carbs cause any, um, any negative effects for them that they were trying to avoid? No, I, I think uh, a lot of them were doing it for uh, recovery. Some of, one patient was doing it for tremors that he noticed improved on a low carb diet. Uh, you know, um, you know, interestingly, that same patient noticed the tremors got worse on statin therapy. Uh, so, you know, there was a lot of numbers. Some people had done it for weight loss. They had lost a lot of weight, and then they didn't want to change their diet. This was a diet that really helped them, and they felt like uh, that bringing back carbohydrates in the past uh, to any high degree really stoked their appetite. So all of these patients had a reason that they wanted to maintain a low-carbohydrate approach, and none of them reported drastic changes. In fact, some of them still made ketones. Um, so meaning that, you know, I think it, it, it really depends on the, the, the patient. Some of patients, you know, they can't give up a low carbohydrate diet for seizures, for example, yeah. or for migraines, or maybe for diabetes. Well, you know, this is uh, potentially brings up ideas and potential options on the amount of carbohydrates you can, uh, you can, you can use it as a tool based on the clinical objective. Yeah, so so the next thing though is I'm sure you you can still get some pushback. People looking at this data will say, look, there's one patient whose LDL came down to 115, but the others, even after adding carbs, we're still talking 236, 195, 360, 185. Those are still considered markedly elevated and according to the guidelines needing treatment. So it's not like they've normalized. So how do you respond to that, that, okay, you've done your intervention, but they haven't come down enough and you still need to address the, the topic of treatment. How do you see that? So just uh, building upon that physician relationship, uh, the, you know, re-educating them. Um, we have an education series where we literally show basically all the genes that raise and lower uh, LDL and its effect on cardiovascular disease. We show them uh, the linear relationship between medications that lower LDL and its relationship to cardiovascular disease. We talk to them about potential ways to screen for cardiovascular disease, uh, at least surveil more closely if they don't want to try one of these other interventions. Some of them are still on their journey. I suspect will come down further in time. Um, some of them go back to kind of their carb-restricted diets and and tell me, well, look, I stopped the, the potato, right? It was too hard for me. So bottom line is we try to just maintain that relationship, advocate for our patients, surveil them as best we can. Ultimately, um, you know, we, we, have to, uh, we have to respect our patient's autonomy. You know, I may want to put patients on a statin because of their risk and because of their levels, um, but if they're not willing to do it and it's not something that's consistent with their values, I can't force them. And uh, we still have to help these people. We cannot abandon them. We cannot fire them. Hmm. Some of these patients have literally been fired from practices because their LDL was too high and they didn't want to do anything about it. And these people still need help. So, you know, I would love to be able to say, just take this medication, all your problems will go away. But that doesn't meet the patient where their values are. And we try to keep them vigilant, keep educating them and help them make the best decisions possible for them and consistent with their values. Uh, 
um, it is a it is a challenge. You know, I, I have ideals for patients, and, and the medicine modern medicine has many ideals for patients. But ultimately, we have to be able to cater those ideals to what patients are willing to do. And so, to doctors who say it is unethical to not treat an LDL of 360 or of, of 236, it is unethical to not tell your patient they have to do it. What, how do you respond? I, I mean, I tell them, this is what modern medicine tells you to do. This is, what, this is the best information we have. I literally tell these patients that. And uh, this is the best option. But should I abandon them because they said, I'm not going to do that? I think that that is unethical. I don't know what to do. These patients have, have teams of cardiologists. They don't have just me. They have teams of people, um, and we are a, a, basically a supplement to that. And oftentimes, we're spending a lot more time with them uh, than other other patients do. And some patients, you know, they're not included in this data set. Some of our patients had very. We found that they had very high risk, right? Maybe they had some uh, coronary artery calcium. Okay, we told them like, look, your risk is way too high. Here is your risk. Your risk is. 15% in the next 10 years. And, and they, they take that information and they, uh, they may change. Some of them don't. They throw, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, I know my risk is 20%, but you can't get me to do something I don't want to do. Yeah. You brought up such a great point. What, what is, you didn't say it quite this way, but I'll rephrase it. What's more unethical, educating them and not treating them or abandoning them and firing them, which is more unethical. And I think we both sort of agree on, on that answer. But, uh, cause this term gets thrown around a lot, unethical, that is unethical to evaluate. This is unethical to, to even investigate LDLs above 190 because of the data we have. But, uh, you know, when it comes down to individual treatment, individual patients, I think your approach really resonates with me. And I hope a lot of people hear and internalize what you're saying. It's not that you said, this is no problem. Don't worry about it. We're just going to change your diet a little bit. But you you went through a detailed analysis and explanation of the different options of the risks of the potential treatments, and then came to a decision with the patient. And that's why I really respect that so much about you and about your approach, that you really believe in the, the decision-making with you together with the patients and the education component of it. So I think that's the biggest take home from people from this. So do you have, do you have other things you want to add about the, this case series or about this topic in, in general? No, other, other than that, I'm so thankful for my patients, uh, for agreeing to, you know, share their data. And, uh, I just want to thank them. I really want to thank, you know, uh, David Ludwig, Dave Feldman, you know, Nick and, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Sonomoda. Um, uh, this was a group effort, um, that started, really about two years ago, when I reached out to Dave, I said, Dave, I got these five patients, we have to publish them. Mm -hmm. And uh, me and Dave talked for a year and then, you know, uh, you know, talked to David Ludwig and then talked to Nick and, and, um, and without, you know, Nick Norwitz and, and uh, Adrian Sotomoda, like this wouldn't have happened. And it's just a fantastic experience uh, to be able to bring this to the literature, at least so we can help the lipidologists of the world with more information. Because in reality, uh, the data doesn't exist on these people. So if we can at least identify who they are and potentially talk about uh, mitigation strategies, nothing concrete, but potentially talk about mitigation strategies, we may be able to help people 
um, who are unwilling or you know don't tolerate medications. Well, there you have it. That was a pretty extensive uh, overview and evaluation of this new paper. Now, as we brought up a number of times uh, during this interview, this doesn't say anything about whether this is safe or not, whether it needs to be treated or not, but a number of concepts sort of came up. And the first one, I have to say, again, is that sort of differentiation between the lean mass hyperresponder and the non-lean mass hyperresponder, and the analogy to homozygous or heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia. Because we have to ask ourselves, is there maybe a new cut point for what is a quote-unquote safe LDL or a harmful LDL? in this population that is metabolically healthy, has great HDL and triglycerides and no other cardiovascular risk factors. And for that, you know, there's definitely going to be pushback to say, look, this question is settled. Increasing ApoB, increasing LDL correlates with increasing risk of cardiovascular disease, period. And that is true. There's so much evidence to support that statement. But I think the next question is, is there evident, any evidence to refute it? Is there any contrary evidence? And the answer there is yes, there is. Whether you look at the, the 4S trial, which was uh, a statin trial on people who have had heart attacks, those people who had um, high HDL and low triglycerides didn't see the benefit of treating with the statins. Um, going all the way back to the Framingham study, people who had high HDL, they could have LDLs of 220 and didn't see the same increased risk as if they had lower HDLs. There was a Copenhagen's men's study, which looked at LDLs above and below 170. Didn't matter at all your risk of heart attacks unless your triglyceride to HDL ratio was bad. So there is some evidence to support it. By no means prove it, right? By no means prove it, but to support the, the concept that there's maybe some populations out there that don't have the same risk and could benefit from a, a different evaluation of what their quote-unquote set point is. And that's where I think this study can really help benefit things, that it defines the non-lean mass hyperresponders and the lean mass hyperresponders. Now, the pushback clearly can be against these lean mass hyperresponders, that people saying, look, these are levels we don't see except in homozygous familial hypercholesterolemia, and that is a disaster for people who have it. So we have to consider this to be exactly the same. And, and look, I can, I can understand that because when you're sitting, when you're a clinician and you're sitting with a patient and you have to do the best you can for this patient, what are you going to tell them? You certainly can't tell them, oh, this is probably harmless, don't worry about it. But now at least we know, based on these case studies certainly, you can just make simple changes with carbohydrates. One potato a day was reducing the carbohydrates, was reducing the LDL dramatically in those four, in those five case studies by, um, by Dr. Tro. I mean, that's pretty impressive. So there are more tools to maybe make small changes. Also, we talked a lot about statin intolerant patients that you know, they were offered lipid lowering therapy, but we also have to be honest, statins aren't the only medication to lower lipids. There's the PCSK9 inhibitors, and there's a medication called Zetia. Now I got to throw my two cents in here about Zetia. The, I guess the knock about Zetia in general cardiology is that it only lowers LDL by about 20%. Um, but I've got quite a bit of experience treating patients who are hyper responders on low carb diets. And I found that to be more like 40 to 50% reduction. Now this isn't published. This is my own anecdotal experience, my one person opinion. So take it with a huge grain of salt. Um, but I'm, I'm more of a believer in, in Zetia for someone who wants to treat their LDL and is on low carb. So the point being though, there's more options than just statins. So we have to look at this whole picture of saying, okay, your LDL went up on a low-carb diet? Are you getting benefits from the low-carb diet that you want to continue it? Can we make small changes in the number of carbohydrates, which may lower it? Or if you want to continue it long-term, do we need to address one of the many options for LDL lowering? Or do you want to just monitor things um, in terms of uh, plaque 
um, presence or progression to then maybe suggest treatment. These are all options, and it's sort of to the degree, the Wild West. But I can see how clinicians are going to say, look, we need to fall back to the evidence we have, that the evidence is this is concerning and needs to be fixed. Um, but I think we also need to open our eyes to their different populations, and maybe there's a new cutoff or should be a new cutoff for this non-lean mass hyper-responder group and then addressing the hyper-responder group separately. So very fascinating topic as far as I'm concerned. I think it deserves the attention it's getting because it's a brand new population um, that should be studied and what it's going to teach us about lipid metabolism and lipid physiology and how that interplays with nutrition um, and energy, uh, I think is going to be very worthwhile. But again, 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 this says nothing about prognosis. This says nothing about safety. So it does have to be treated very, very cautiously. All right, more to come from this for sure. I, I think there's going to be a lot more topics about um, hyper-responders and lean mass hyper-responders, and I'm looking forward to seeing it. All right, thanks a lot. We'll see you next time on the Diet Doctor Podcast.